Welcome to episode 309 of the Thinking Poker podcast from, I don't even know where exactly I am, Three Rivers, Oregon. I'm Andrew Brokus, joined by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and Matt Glassman somewhere in the D.C. metro area. Yeah, Vienna, Virginia. Vienna, Virginia. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us again this is what your sixth appearance seven is that right is that who where does that put me on the leaderboard uh i probably just right behind carlos does he even count though i don't think so yeah okay good so maybe i'm first he's he's closer to being a third host than a most popular guest (laughs) i'm feeling pressure right now because your last episode was wildly popular and like also wildly popular among some of our biggest fans and frankly i don't think we can match it Oh, really? Well, I mean, we did spend our time just telling Foxwood stories, so I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I, I'm not sure I have a better wheelhouse than that for this right. audience. Right. I mean, we played we played the trump card, you know, the, 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 the yeah, that's, that's it. Well, that's sometime it. we could do the Trumbull game, and that might yeah. get the same wheelhouse going. Um, and, oh, so how do you see the counts of how many, ep- how many people listen to an episode? You used to be able to see that on your website, Andrew, and now I don't think you can. So that's just proprietary information now. <laughs> um, it may actually be information we don't have now. Um, I, I switched our our like pod, the the platform by which I published the podcast because the previous one um, got compromised and the and the site was like briefly hacked through it because mm. um, it's a a WordPress plugin. Mm. Um, so I, I I sort of in a hurry, um, deleted that and switched to a different one. And uh, I'm realizing I may not have set up the um, the data collection properly on that. So by wildly popular, Nate, you're going on some softer data <clears throat> here. Yeah, I mean, like, four of our biggest fans were enthusing uh, about oh. it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably, I mean, that might be better data, actually, than just some count. I mean, listen to the show. Is this like this, do you think that, does this sound like a show, the goal of which is to get like as many people listening to it as possible? <laughs> like... <laughs> Let me tell you about the hallways on the on the route to the Foxwoods bathroom. Man. Yeah, no, it's like, it's not, a, I guess now we're selling the Weekend Warrior podcasts, which are excellent. I'm glad people are buying them. I think they're getting their money's worth, so I can't make my usual joke about like how I'm not making any money. Like it's, yeah, I've got, I've got different. I've got different motives. I'm I'm like somebody who's running for president, uh, in that a lot of people look at what I'm doing and totally misunderstand my motives. How about exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So you never never judge a strategy until you understand the goal, because if the goal doesn't match, then you're not going to have a clue what their strategy is, good or bad, right? Yeah. Card games, yeah. residential running, podcast yeah. hosting, it's all in there. Yeah. Yeah. You've sold out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a little complicated because, um, Andrew, I think your career has a little more to do with, like, how many people we get. And, uh, I mean, this has never caused conflict between us, but at least 
dispositionally are are uh, some of our motives are different here. I think I think you would probably do a little bit more to grow the listenership than I would. Right, like, <laughs> I, I haven't done that much to grow the listenership. <laughs> right. But so Nate's implication, Andrew, is that if you if you if you could just hundred x the audience, you just cut Carlos loose in two seconds. Uh, those. I mean, the best way to hundred x the audience would be to have more Carlos. <laughs> I didn't say that. The, the the hypothetical Nate Nate's proposing here is that you're you're much more likely to do something like that, some drastic move that cuts into your biggest fans uh, in order to hundred extra audience. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, certainly not not Carla specifically. Uh, there there might be some other things. <laughs> there, there <where> <laughs> like you, Matt, I, I feel like <laughs> Carlos is the biggest compensation I get from doing the show. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I have not played a lot of poker recently. Have either of you guys? I, I played a little bit recently. Uh, then we talked about the hands on the premium show. Then the rest of it was just sort of watching the world go by at the Encore uh, early. Uh, self-parking is now free, which I haven't been, but I kind of want to go to the poker room just to hear everybody talking all day about how self-parking is now free. Like, it's the sort of thing that people in the poker room would just not shut up about. There, there and, was a lot uh, of talk about the new menu and how there was going to be a new poker menu, and it ended up just being <laughs> the addition of a, a rice bowl to the existing menu. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been kind of hoping that MGM follows through on its threat, the charge for parking at National Harbor. Um, not because it'd be good for me, it'd be bad for me, but just so that I could just go to the poker room after that happens and just luxuriate in the complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the, it, during that period when, and, and here we are back in the wheelhouse, when Mohegan <laughs> Sun, when Mohegan <laughs> Sun did not have a room, when they yes. formerly had a room and, and there were like rumors for years that they would open one again. Boy, that was a, how many, that, that's sort of a fun uh, piano tuner question like how many hours of conversation were there in the Foxwoods poker room about like why the Mohegan Sun poker room had closed and when it would reopen <laughs> well so Mohegan Sun was weird because it closed I don't remember when it exactly closed but I don't think I went there after the moneymaker television shows were aired so i never saw it post boom like when i think of the mohegan room i think of a room in connecticut right that was still 50 percent stud games of some sort mm -hmm. and uh the hold'em games were kind of weird and i i would kind of look at the hold'em games and be like eh, i'm not sure i want to try that um and so i have this very kind of very old school image of the of the mohegan room and then yes and it was non-stop sort of like the height of discussion partially because there were like no poker rooms in New England except Foxwoods yeah. and Mohegan, and so like if one of them closes, may reopen. People are going to wonder about it. Yeah, that's something that a lot of newer players have no sense of. Is like walking into a poker room and it being a special destination. Like you're in the only big poker room for for hundreds of miles around, and you know Foxwoods, one of the very biggest in the world. I guess it still is, but. Um, you know, like there's not poker in every city. There, there wasn't public legal poker in every city or anywhere close to it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, sure. Yeah, when, when, yeah. I mean, even just, yeah, just casinos in general. When Turning Stone opened in 1995 or six, so I was 18 when it opened, and 
I think you'll only be 18 to play there. I don't think there was a poker room in the United States an 18-year-old could play, and certainly not in the East Coast. Um, you could go up to Montreal, I guess, but like it was just like there were just no casinos. It really was like, wow, look, you could go to Atlantic City if you're 21 or fly to Las Vegas. But beyond that, like Foxwoods had opened a couple years before that, but that was far away. I mean, it was really kind of really sort of a totally different world when yeah. uh, Las Vegas and Atlantic City were the only places to sort of legally gamble. Yeah, I remember when people would get too drunk at Foxwoods, and and the standard way to keep the the standard way to keep them in line was to remind them that Atlantic City was a very far drive. <laughs> 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 Not the case now. Not the case now. So. Uh, so, so you have not been playing much poker, is that is that correct? Uh, I've not played a lot, but what I have played has been interesting. Um, so, you know, we, we interviewed a while ago, and I encourage people to to listen to this interview with Angela Jordison. Jordison? Yeah. <laughs> Extremely popular interview, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I one of my favorites, personally. I, I agree. And I, th- I mean, I think it's popular with everyone who listened to it. I imagine there's a fair number of people who, you know, are, are selecting which episodes they listen to based on name recognition of the guest, which honestly, I would say, like, if anything, you should do the opposite. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. if there's people, like, our standards for having someone really famous on the show, honestly, are a little lower than our standards for having someone you've never heard of on the show. And like, if it's someone you've never heard of um it, there's a pretty good chance that like that's a very interesting person and that's the reason we we have them on the show but that aside D- yeah. D- daniel negrano if you're listening you can come on the show anytime <laughs> you want please it, it's, it's it's skype yeah any, you, you can definitely come on the show go ahead Andrew. um yeah so angela jordison among other things told us a lot that i at least didn't know about the poker scene in oregon which is that it's all um these kind of like poker clubs where they don't charge rake. Instead, you just like pay a flat amount at the door. And then some places they're more loosey goosey about this than others. But at the Ben poker room, it's actually a, a player dealt game, um, which is sort of interesting in its own right. And, and we had uh, the the previous owners of the Bend poker room on the on the show. They're, they've actually sold it, I learned recently. And um, I, I've met and liked the new owner, and I hope that we'll have him on the show at some point. I think he has uh, an interesting story in his own right. But anyway, so I, I went there. They don't have particularly big games for the most part. They do have a consistent PLO8 game, which is a pretty rare thing like, for for being a very small poker room, like one of the smallest poker rooms I've ever played in. Um, they they happen to have this PLO8 game that, that Angela kind of uh, organizes, and it's just you know there's not a lot of opportunities to play live PLO8 cash games, and and this is one of them. So that was fun. Um, I got to play mm-hmm. some some PLO8, but then while I was there, I found out they were having a 500 hour tournament, which is not uh particularly large for you know it's it's kind of the smallest tournament that i sort of consider like worth playing as opposed to just playing a cash game or something uh but this one i kind of thought well it's the biggest tournament that they've ever hosted at this room i think there's not really a lot of really serious poker players in this area it's probably going to be a pretty good value tournament um and it did i mean it was it was i didn't cash in it but it was uh, it, it felt like a good value it was a lot of fun it's a very interesting group of people who are um who are participating in it so yeah it, it ended up working out uh, pretty pretty nicely the, the ben poker in the little bit that i played i didn't have a lot of time while i was in bend but i got over there a few times and 
uh, both times it was a very enjoyable experience nice and that 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 buzz that's in the room when it's the biggest poker tournament yes. you know for miles around for years that 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 probably felt fun and that, good. that's a, a big part of it yeah you just know that's like what everyone's been talking about and like what everyone is going to be talking about for a long time after is sort of you know how did you do in the big tournament what uh you know had, did you satellite in have you won your seat yeah you know, everyone wants to win their seat because like that's it's a big you know the, a lot of these people are, are you know buying in short in a one-two game is like their their usual thing so you know playing poker for 500 hours is, is a pretty big deal and most of them are looking to satellite in so there's a lot of talk about how did you get your seat and do you have your seat yet did you win a raffle or um yeah it's just interesting are the are the tournaments self-dealt yes so how does that work you um, just have to sit out for a bit of time or you deal to yourself as a player you deal to yourself as a player which is also how it works in the cash game oh okay um yeah, I mean, we we had a little bit of a conversation about the security stuff with the the, the previous um, owner when when he was on the show. It's I wouldn't have wanted to play for any more money <laughs> under these <laughs> under these conditions. <laughs> not even necessarily just people aren't good at dealing. Like people expose cards. People, you know, it's just right. it, it's not. It doesn't require any nefariousness on, on any. Like I don't. I, I didn't really have any particular suspicions that anyone was was cheating or i mean i, I would I, I kind of doubt that anyone was in any serious way but um i do think people were very sloppy with their dealing and i think that um there probably were people seeing cards flashed who weren't saying anything about the fact that they saw cards flashed um i suppose you consider that cheating but i think it's pretty mild compared to you know what what else might be considered cheating um so yeah you the the deal rotates in in a, in a cash game the way it works is that you uh you high card if it's your first time in the room you don't have to deal if you're over 70 you don't have to deal um you're allowed to hire someone else to uh, you, you you can pay another player to deal for you you can't hire a non-player to deal for you that seems to be a at least a local regulation or whatever they don't have professional dealers but you can you know give another player in the game say i'll give you 15 dollars to, to deal for me or something which by the way that seems to be about the going rate to have somebody deal for you for uh, to take your deal for an hour which i think gives you a sense of how reasonable time collections are in casinos when you realize you're getting like a dealer plus other stuff and then when you see what the actual market is to to have someone take your deal and to see that people are willing to pay 15 or 20 dollars to be able to sit in the game and, and dealing is annoying like i, I I kind of understand where they're coming from. I mean, I, I, as a novelty, I enjoyed doing it. It's not something I'd want to do day in and day out, but it, it did make me appreciate how much I was getting, even when I'm paying. Like, you know, like I think the, the Boston um, Casino has a pretty high hourly time collection, but yeah, I mean, dealing sucks and having professional dealers is nice. But in, in the tournaments, the, the whole table rotates. So every hour, uh, the clock is paused everybody gets up and moves one seat clockwise. Um, if the player who would be moved into the box is exempted from dealing for one of those reasons, then everybody moves two seats clockwise or mm -hmm. just keeps moving clockwise until someone lands in the box who's uh, eligible to deal and then that person deals. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. That's, that's interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt, did you ever play those old bar games in New Haven? I did. Uh, Mostly, mostly tournaments down at what was that bar down across the river? Yeah, uh, Bogarts. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah used to yeah. play the bathroom <clears throat> tournaments at Bogarts, which were, man, if you want to talk about a soft poker tournament, go to yeah. 2003 and get in the back room at Bogarts, where they're 
Like, I was always worried about the security of those tournaments because they were literally playing with, like, the dice chips. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> so go, bring your own. If you want to add on, just bring it yourself. Yeah. And, uh, and so, but those were fun. I, I, I um, yeah, those were, and uh, I never really knew where those sat with the law because they were kind of out in the open, but I didn't get the feeling that they were actually <laughs> legitimate <laughs> in any sense. Uh, and those were, it's amazing how quickly the norms develop of security in those situations because I never talked, you know, I'd be in this tournament, I never talked to anyone else playing the tournament and instantly there's like a, well, you know, we'll shuffle here and then the next guy will cut and the dealer, you know, it'll shuffle two behind the deal and then cut yeah. one behind the deal and then go to the dealer, things like that. Um, just yeah. kind of just crop up like automatically. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's one of the things I remember also like. Paul Darden being there. That's something I yeah, also remember. No. Well, <laughs> very so, right. I, so I always had like a general maxim about those cash games in the bars. Like if you were in a bar and like you could see the cash game, you probably didn't want to be in it necessarily. Cause like, why are they advertising this if it's of any sort of stakes? Um, but yeah, I would hear about, I would hear about those. And uh, yeah, no, I remember Paul Darden being around town too. This is Paul Darden, the, the OJ Simpson case lawyer. This is Paul Darden, the the famous poker player from the boom era. Um, yep. Bellagio regular for many, many years. He he made a sort of medium deep run the moneymaker year, so was you know heavily exposed on ESPN. Okay. And he won one of the WPTs back when that Christopher Darden is a, who I was thinking of. Yeah, no, this is Paul Darden. Okay. And his father owned a bar in New Haven, I think was yeah. the basic backstory, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> Um, so I've been tell me what you think of this so I, I have not been playing a ton of well real I've been playing real poker but I've been playing a lot of just like two cent five cent zoom online just to practice my like preflop ranges and I can't tell if that's good for me or bad for me what do you think do you think two two cent five cent zoom is a is a good way to practice your ranges I vote yes. Andrew, what do you think? <laughs> when you say practice your ranges, what exactly is the... Can you, can you say more about what the goal is here? Yeah, sure. My main, my main function there is just to be able to put a ton of volume in where I'm evaluating hands in different preflop positions against different openings from other preflop positions just to sort of fine-tune what I think my ranges should be. Um, not necessarily to be two cent, five cent zoom, but just for like the normal games I'll be playing in, like a one three or two five game down at MGM or just a neighborhood game with some of my buddies who are serious recreational players. Um, the you know the 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 downside that I perceive is that I do actually play out the hands uh, in these zoom games, and so I am being exposed to sort of the tendencies of the player pools. Um, I am I'm doing a Bovada where it's anonymous, so I'm literally thinking about sort of like once the hand gets going about the player pools on Bovada, and I don't know if that's like, I mean, it sure it can't be that bad, but if there's like a major downside in that those games are very different from any kind of game of bigger size or that isn't a Zoom game, I just don't know enough about them really, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's kind like of my training I'm myself. Bad. Is like you're it's it's not like you have no idea what ranges should be. I mean, if if we're talking about you're you're more kind of trying to fine-tune the details and I think that it's like given that it's not at all the environment that you're like fine-tuning for right that you're generally playing with people who are trying a little harder and where you're paying less rake Um, and maybe those things cancel each other out a little bit but I would think that if anything you're probably getting the wrong kind of feedback on like 
like you, you just start to get a feel for okay it's profitable to play this kind of hand here because this guy's not going to three that as much as he should or like even if those like maybe i mean probably more dangerously if you're not fully aware of why it's profitable you're just like oh it just feels like this usually works when i do this um yes then yes, you know this is maybe the it doesn't concern. usually work mm-hmm. i mean that said like i i do think it's a great way to practice like drilling your own ranges into your intuition yes and that's um, why I asked. If, if it's more just you want like you already know what you want your ranges to be and you just want like muscle memory then yeah yeah i mean that that's my approach that's my reason for doing it but of course like i'm going to be playing the hands out right <laughs> um and so right like i'm not like going to like objectively do things that i know are bad on bovada two cent five cent on the river just because i want to you know practice or whatever but i've been doing that i also the other poker i've been playing is that the the tournament series i started playing in last year uh and won last year has has started back up for the world series for next summer so i played one tournament in that came in fourth um, but I still feel pretty good about it. It's a good field. I, I, I have no idea whether to congratulate you. This is a horribly complicated <laughs> thing. It's, I've like I've like actually put uh, some intellectual effort into figuring out how good that is, and I just don't know. I'm very confused. Congratulations, maybe. Yeah, I know. I think it's good. I don't know. It's um, yeah. It didn't. Uh, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't feel good or bad when I finished. It just I just got up and walked six feet over to the cash table and sat down there, and that felt fine too. So <laughs> I, I felt very sort of like uh, I feel sort of I felt like a kind of a grizzled pro. I just I lost. I stood up. I said, "Okay, fellas, I'll see the cash table." I walked over, and it was like nothing had happened to me. It was very nice. It's a good feeling. Very good. Very good. Does it feel different now that you've been to Las Vegas through this uh, through this process? Yeah, it does. It well, I think it right. It definitely does. And uh, so, um, hmm, how would I say this? Well, so one thing that's true is last year I won the Vegas package um, and went to Vegas. But my overall uh, return from this uh, this game was less than in previous years when I had not been eligible to play in these tournaments and I just played in the cash game that ran inside it. <laughs> So it does have that aspect to it. And like, well, whatever. It was super fun to go to Vegas. I had a great time. And I hope I go there again. Like, But the thought now has crossed the back of my mind. It's like, man, if I don't qualify for this Vegas package, and I could have been sitting at that cash table all this time, <laughs> like, boy, am I going to be hot. Um, but no, I mean, it's 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 fun. And uh, I, I, like, I like the tournaments because I think, um, you know, one thing that you don't get to do a lot in poker is play tournaments with people you know all well like a lot of times you can get into cash game situations in home games where you know the people and you know their tendencies and that that can be a lot of fun um and you don't do that a lot in tournaments in poker but you do in this one so i i I do enjoy sort of trying to leverage information i know about you know individual players hey can i go back to why i thought it was actually a good idea for you to drill two cent five cent online yeah so like in my experience a those games are not tough but very real and you can get a lot of volume quickly so hooray for that and b um especially if you're willing to make notes of hands that feel close to you um actually like as as one part of a range building strategy um just putting in a bunch of volume and making notes and then sort of double checking the ones that feel close to you is is really it's i think it's uh something that's hard to get by other means and then also, yeah, just giving yourself muscle memory for the things you already have and um, for the strategies you already have. And in particular, understanding 
intuitively a little bit better why you have them because you actually do see the flop come out. It's like, oh, you know, this can type actually does make straights sometimes. Yeah, you, you just, it, I think it helps build that kind of intuition too. So that's why I yeah. thought it was okay. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely what I'm going for. <laughs> like just the, the idea of being able to just easily knock off, you know, two or 400 hands in the course of, you know, an hour or 90 minutes, just two tabling or whatever, a Zoom game, I feel like is good for that intuition. But I'm just worried about like my, my range is slipping, even though I'm not trying to adjust my ranges there, just trying to like build the intuition of say, you know, the, the ranges that for any kind of like recreational player like me don't come purely natural, like my, you know, button ranges when the cutoff opens, things like that, the ones that are really wide. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so, well, I'm glad I get, a, uh, get at least a one thumbs up to this. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies for the interruption, folks, but since we don't have a strategy segment this week, I need to find some time to tell you about Tournament Poker Edge. And if you're missing the strategy segment, then head on over to tournamentpokeredge.com and you can scratch your poker strategy itch. You'll find a huge number of videos from myself and many other talented poker players for as little as $25 a month. Plenty of insights into both live and online poker tournament strategy at www.tournamentpokeredge.com. If you want to hear Nate and me talking strategy, you can get five hours of that on the new Weekend Warrior podcast. That is available at nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. That's also where you'll find my book, Play Optimal Poker, Nate's books, Thinking Tournament Poker, and some other premium podcast series. Back to the show. So we, we had a request, and um, I, I don't. I honestly have not been following this like as closely as most of the poker world was, and it wouldn't surprise me, Nate, if, if you haven't either. But uh, we, we did have a request from an eminent member of the Thinking Poker community. If you had any thoughts on the uh, Mike Possel uh, Stones live poker potential cheating situation. Yeah, I know almost nothing about it. Here's what I know. It's that it was one of these like live stream games. <clears throat> and there appears to be overwhelming evidence that he was cheating. Um, there's like still a little bit of dispute about this, it appears. But like a lot of the evidence seems really, really damning. And the question seems to be like, A, do you think he was cheating? And B, what should we make of that more generally? And like, as any listener of the show knows, I, I think that there's probably more cheating going on out there than most other prominent poker people either believe is going on out there or, or want to talk about. Um, so I think some of the he probably wasn't cheating side is uh, explicitly or implicitly grounded, uh, you know, sort of for Bayesian reasons in, in, a, in a background belief that there's very little, that the base rate of cheating is lower than I think it is. Um, relatedly, I just want to make the point that like Pot Ripper got caught like the old one of the old UB cheaters, or maybe that was absolute, um, because he was doing like just extremely stupid things and extremely transparent things. Where if you went through the hand logs, you you would catch him. Um, and it appears again, these are allegations. I'm not saying anything about Postle. I'm just reporting sort of the way things seem from what little I've seen on Twitter. Uh, it, it it appears that um, this person, if if he was cheating was not doing a great job of of concealing the fact that he was um 
to anybody who who would look at the logs carefully. And speaking of Bayesian reasoning, <laughs> if 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 every cheater we're catching uh, is being really stupid about it, like, do you think that everybody who's cheating is is stupid about it? Like, this is an opinion you hear sometimes. It's that you know cheats are stupid. Isn't it good that cheats are stupid? But um, uh, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. And like. When you look at, for those of us who uh, make our livings in software and, and think about software security, it's especially where there's money. There's there's always people trying very very hard to get that money, uh, you know, by by any means. So I think um, this is further confirmation of my background belief that there's probably a bit more cheating in poker than uh, anybody would like to think there is. What do you think, Matt? Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think um, I think there's. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much cheating there is of this sort, just because this seems to be a very narrow opportunity window. Yeah. Um, but I certainly think there's plenty of people thinking about it. I, my my base belief about poker has always been that at the core, there's a tremendous number of people who just see it as a hustle. And once something's a hustle, anything goes to get the money. Um, and I think that attitude still pervades a lot of people in poker, and that can lead everything, you know, that can lead from everything to sort of the softer ethics right up to sort of systematic, um, outright uh, cheating and manipulation. I think, you know, the funny Bayesian thing to me about this is like, well, if you're going to win at whatever he's, whatever win rate he was putting up, which is a stupid win rate per hundred or whatever, like, how could you not ever be seen in a 510 game or higher anywhere outside of these, like, RFID? live games right like and that just seems like the epitome of stupid not like looking at your phone at the table or whatever but just like you need if you're going to win at that rate you need to have people see you playing like five ten and ten and a quarter in other places or things are going to get really suspicious really fast right yeah. um and that to me that's the best I, I mean i haven't like you i have not read a lot about this like i considered going for that two plus two deep dive <laughs> <laughs> and i was like you know what i'm gonna sit this one out um but to me like just the circumstantial evidence of from what i gather is that no one ever sees him play big outside of this game and that's just not credible for anyone who's beating this game at the rate like he supposedly was beating it at you would be i mean poker players who have huge win rates like to play poker right. um, <laughs> it, it is fun to crush souls for a thousand dollars an hour yeah I imagine. Yeah. So that that's my that's my bottom line on this and that and that I don't again I have not studied it, but if anyone's beating a game for that kind of money and is never seen playing games outside that game, I am going to be really skeptical really quickly. Yeah. And also, again, these are just allegations, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But I think some of the defense is like, yeah, I'm just like a field player. I'm one of these like old school guys, you know, go 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 by my gut. And like, not only are poker players generally really really bad about bankroll management but like specifically people who say things like that like those people like have you ever seen such a person win like five thousand dollars in a one three game and then like like no no no, i'm not gonna not gonna test my skills at two five like i just <laughs> right. i'm just a, i'm just a one three specialist Crusher. when it comes to like my brilliant intuit it's it, right. it's just not right. not 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 plausible to me um, yeah, and I mean, it's also like, well, I'm just an old school soul reader. Well, the old school soul readers were cheating at a magnificent rate too. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yep, yep, yep. Um, yeah, I feel bad that I don't have a better answer for a lot of reasons. One of which is that the eminent member of the community who seems to care what I think about this, like, 
I could probably count on one hand the number of subjects he would really care about my opinion <laughs> of. <laughs> so, uh, and and this this ain't helping. So, but sorry, eminent member of the community. Uh, you know, I love you anyway. <laughs> so, meta question: Why do we think this has captured the? Uh, attention, imagination, whatever of the... I mean, I know the poker community like likes poker scandals and stuff, but the people who are putting a lot of time into this are like... They're not just... They're, they're not your typical... Well, Joe Ingram kind of is, but like Matt Berkey <laughs> or, or Chris Kruk, like your, your, your typical kind of like armchair investigators. What is it about this story that is kind of like is, is making the whole poker world pay attention to this? So Ber- Berkey has a personal involvement. Like something about a car ride with somebody. Uh, see, like this, is, this is news to me. So I think Berkey has like some sort of personal connection to this. And also on the show, Berkey, you know, however long ago, years ago, five years ago, good heavens, long time ago. I remember uh, he and I were both watching independently. We we both had the the Pirates-Tigers game on That's like right. a separate monitor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but like I remember the apartment I was in and that was a long time ago. Yeah, uh, not the point. He was cranky that he would get shut out of some of these games in the Pittsburgh area, I think. So I think possibly Berkey has some sort of personal connection to this and it's like a subject that he cares a lot about. Um, it's just like the lineups in these TV games or stream games. Um, so that's that. I also think there's like a content creation angle, like there's video there. It's interesting. Um, again, w- whenever there's like video attached, I think um, it gets people excited. People can post clips. I mean, certainly like YouTubers, like, I mean, Doug Polk, Doug Polk's not going to do like a million episodes, right. like the combination of um, snarking on small stakes and, and, you know, making a lot of YouTube videos. Like that's, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty Doug. Um, and, and I say this as somebody who thinks Doug does a lot of really good work. And uh, I, but you know, it's kind of, again, it's his wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, there's like scandal plus video. Um, that's that's a that's a powerful thing. I, I hope Matt has something more intelligent to say here. Well, I mean, the thing that grabs me about it, and again, I haven't gone for the deep dive, is like everybody kind of always thought the RFID stuff, you know, had some security issues. And like now it seems like it does. And like, I think a lot of people just want to know how we did it. I mean, that's my main question. Like when this is all over, I'll be mostly interested in kind of like the technical, how do you do this? Um, Which I think will probably be pretty banal. It'll just be like someone on the inside is helping them. (laughs) (laughs) And just texting them the whole card or whatever. But um, I mean, I think that that's one angle to it. I also think like there's definitely like a solve it yourself angle to the video. I mean, you saw that at sort of like the... Uh, stats math nerd level with the online stuff but now here you can be just like a you know do it yourself sleuth at home with this stuff because all the evidence is sort of sitting in front of you or at least a lot of potential data that's evidence is sitting in front of you but I don't have any sort of magical intuition about why like sports center is running features on this um, wait 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 what yeah, yeah. There was oh, like, this was like mentioned on sports center and other sort of like major sort of like mainstream publications the ringer had you know a long deep dive into it um and so it kind of has even broken semi-mainstream um and uh 
So I don't know. But I mean, I don't have a good answer to why this, why now, um, because there's plenty of things that I would think would be at least mildly equivalent to this that you know don't blow up or whatever. Yeah, that, that was kind of my, um, what, what you said, Matt, was sort of my intuition also. Just that you know, we, we've come to accept the RFID and televised whole cards thing as just a really intrinsic part of poker. And I, even I was just kind of on the outskirts a little bit of the poker scene when that stuff was first getting big. But I know that it was very controversial. And, and if I'm recalling correctly, there was a, you know, a, a lot of the top players of the era were boycotting the WPT for a while. Um, and I, I just, a, a lot of people really didn't want to be playing in this condition where their whole cards were exposed. And that wasn't entirely about security concerns. Some of it was just not wanting their you know, secrets exposed or their play um, made available to their potential opponents and, and that kind of thing. But just that, you know, th- there was this sort of assurance of like, oh, don't worry, we've got the security covered and when when players raise security concerns. And so I think there are some people now maybe who are feeling validated in their uh concerns about playing in streamed situations because it's often not optional you know if if you're assigned to a feature table at the world series of poker for instance you can't just say oh i I don't really want to be on the feature table there's some stories of you know maybe one or two famous players getting away with doing something like that but in general it's not optional like you sign a waiver when you enter the tournament saying if i go on a feature table i'm gonna show my whole cards and i'm gonna make sure i put the whole cards over the RFID reader and it's not going to be considered acceptable for me to muck my cards without exposing them to the camera and I might be eliminated from the tournament if I you know, continue to do that when I've been warned not to. Yeah, that's uh, plausible. That's plausible. That's, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's unfortunate. I would much rather stuff like this not happen, but, um, I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I mean, I... Right. I also think there's there's a fascination with, I mean, I have it too, with big swindles, right? Yeah. Like yeah. bank robberies are make huge news because they're crimes, but they also make big big news because people like love seeing huge swindles go down. And uh, to the degree that this was a huge swindle right under people's noses, like that's like a, a fun story, right? That people would watch a movie made out of. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that it has sort of a, a mass popularity too in some ways. Well, in uh, in other scandal news, Matt, I've been <laughs> very grateful for your uh, Twitter feed. I mean, as I always am, but I think it, particularly there's been so much uh, speculation and whatnot swirling around the whole impeachment issue for the last yeah. couple of weeks. And um, I really feel like your Twitter feed, I mean, but you personally and the stuff that you retweet, is it's honestly the only thing I'm interested in, in reading about. I mean, maybe I'm I'm leaving out a little something, but I just feel like there there's so much kind of baseless speculation or motivated reasoning going on, um, and I'm I, I'm very grateful. And I've seen a few other people express this on on Twitter as well. That like I feel like I'm I'm getting something different from you. Oh well, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that in in politics generally, it's hard to separate out things that are based on partisanship or just motivated reasoning or just nonsense making stuff up um, from sort of, uh, you know, what you want to know, just getting the wheat from the chaff. And a a lot of that is because a lot of times the wheat is like unsatisfying. (laughs) It's like, we don't know. (laughs) And there's no way to tell how this is going to turn out. Um, And so, you know, I definitely, you know, impeachment, uh, and that's obviously, you know, the, the underlying 
piece of all this is not sort of a regularly used procedure in the Constitution. Um, it comes up now and again, but it's not something that happens every five years, every 10 years, um, whether it be to a federal judge or to a uh, executive branch official. And so even like members of Congress are not familiar with it. And the parliamentarians in Congress are quite familiar with it, but some of them have never presided over it happening, right? Or have had to deal with it. Uh, and so you're in a huge state of uncertainty um, among, among the actual actors in the game. And so then the people observing it, right? Just you know, it goes off the rails into into what people what people want to know, and uh, I'm certainly uh, I'm certainly informed to a certain degree, but uh, it's not like I know what's going to happen even at the procedural level. Uh, in part because there's a lot of discretion in the hands of the members of Congress, uh, and we don't know uh, what they're going to do about it. Um, even down to the basic rules of the game, um, the Constitution gives us a little guidance, but uh, beyond that, um, this is not something that you can say for sure. Uh, even if, say, the House of Representatives is going to impeach the president, procedurally, what they exactly have to do, or more importantly, what they are going to do. Um, but I'm happy to do, like, Q&A um, questions or anything, because uh, I've been talking about this, like, nonstop, and this is one thing I haven't gotten tired of talking about. <laughs> I, uh, I, did, I did a couple of days last week where I literally, like, walked my kids to school, and then from the time I did that until like eight at night, like the only conversation I had that wasn't about impeachment was like ordering like a sub at the sub shop at noon or something. <laughs> like, and like, even while I was ordering that, I was standing in line with someone who I was talking to impeachment about, right? So, <laughs> you know, in these 12 hour days talking and thinking about impeachment. But I, I, really, I actually really in, in, in enjoy talking about it because it does overlap sort of the political with the procedural without without having to deal with policy and that sounds silly because like politics is about policy but it makes it a lot cleaner i think um what people want to talk about when there's no policy issue kind of impeding sort of how people think about something one thing i'm curious about is what do you think of prediction markets for this <laughs> for this kind of thing you know like if it, so, to look on on predict it for instance they're saying or the, the, the current number on predict it <laughs> so, so we're gonna have to let our listeners in on a little little secret here which is that andrew was about 15 to 20 minutes late to this <laughs> skype session to record this and for that entire 15 or 20 minutes nate talked nate and i talked about the predicted markets for impeachment uh, at which time we decided not to put that on the show, but to just jump in anew. So go ahead, Andrew. Do you have any questions about the predicted market? <laughs> Why do you find predicted markets uh, not podcast worthy? Uh, yeah. So I mean, I, so I think there's a there's a pretty big debate um, uh, in sort of like the popularly informed community as well as into a much more sort of scholarly and academic community about how well prediction markets work uh, and how liquid they are and um, you know how much you can gain from them as insights. And I don't have a strong opinion about that, um, except that a lot of you know the predicted markets I see seem reasonable to me. Um, and I don't know, you know, I just don't have a good sense of how much volume is driving them and how many, you know, people are you know, how many actual sort of sharps there are in there making the lines correct when they're out of whack and things like that. Um, I, my intuition is that they are like not even close to as good as, you know, sports betting markets. Um, the, the orders of magnitude worse than that. Yeah. And uh, that makes them both sort of beatable if you're thinking about it from that angle and sort of less trustable if you're trying to 
derive information from them about sort of public perception. But uh, I don't know. Nate, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, what I told you earlier is that I I sort of drink from a different pond or whatever the right <laughs> metaphor is when it comes to this stuff. Like, I... Uh, I, I different I, bridges. Yeah, there we go. It's like I, I get my information about prediction markets from a different Twitter crowd than from from yours, uh, but one that comes to the same conclusions. Like there are big debates. Uh, some people think they're highly informative. Other people think they're not very informative. There's some evidence on both sides. Um, a lot of the lines pass the smell test. Nobody really knows what the epistemic status of those lines is. And I think that's I think that's about right. I mean, for myself, I dabble in it a little bit, and the single largest prop bet I've ever made, uh, almost by an order of magnitude, was partly because I, I trusted a prediction market. Like, I was being offered a line that was, like, way, way, way different from a prediction market, and and that was part of why I, I, I bit so hard on it. Um, so, like, clearly I trust them at least a little bit. <laughs> um uh but but yeah that's i i i agree with you i they they have some epistemic value but who knows how much nobody really knows i don't think um, i think and nobody yeah, yeah. I, I mean i think when you're looking at them to try and gauge things too when you're not trying to play them but you're just trying to derive sort of information from them it's you have to be very careful about how you're thinking about what the actual bet is on them um, for instance, Nate and I were talking about the like, will Trump be impeached in his first term on Predicted, which currently is at 71 cents or 71% yes. Um, but it's important to remember that uh, a portion of that 29% no is that Trump could die in office, right? Like actuarially, there's like a one or one and a half percent chance he's going to die in the next six months. Um, and there's also he might resign, right? And so there's all these things pushing the other way because I see a lot of people going, wow, 71% is really low for Trump being impeached. Doesn't, don't, you know, they asked me, don't you think the House is going to impeach him at a much higher rate? And I do actually think the House will impeach him at a higher rate, but there's also that other side. I think of it as the left hand of the no. Um, stuff coming from the other direction where they don't impeach him because something even worse has already happened. Um, and a lot of people forget about that when they just casually browse these markets. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a little bit like uh, neglecting, I mean, we neglecting uh, sort of the two outs you might get to hit your set or whatever like <laughs> focusing on on the probability that you're ahead or behind and then you know forgetting you catch up sometimes it's it 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 feels a little bit like that mistake to me although it's structurally different in a few ways um right I, I, yeah right it's like when you have two pair and you're thinking about will i win this hand of stud and you're thinking only about them drawing out on you and not counting when you're going to make a full house or things like that yeah 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 uh, I, I have like a meta question for you about Twitter. Um, yeah. If so, it seems clear to me that you have a bit of a presence on Twitter. Um, that like you know people care what you say. Um, a lot of people like what you say and learn from it. Um, I was talking to somebody who is a a very proud average Joe in a lot of ways. Um, and and he says like ah you know when something happens and I get riled up about it I just go on Twitter and I read what Matt Glassman says and th then then I feel like I understand it better and like you know it's it's possibly not somebody who would you know routinely go read political punditry you know generally mm -hmm. um, and it seems that you know you you're you're successful at Twitter. And that it it, the, it it fits the medium for you, and I, I got to 
and the, the medium fits you in some way. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out exactly what that fit is. Like, like you could probably write a book about you know whatever political realism of of your uh, as you as you think about it and as you uh, you know the, the 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 view from which you give your Twitter opinions. Yeah, you could you could put that into a book, but. Maybe those books already exist. Maybe it's the wrong form. But right. there also seems to be something about authority there. And it's like, is it that you you somehow prove your competence because you're able to produce reasonable takes on things very quickly, like no matter what comes up? Uh, is it that you establish that you're sort of a regular dude by also talking about oh, that's you know, funny to think about card games? Like 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 what 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 exactly like rhetorically rhetorically what's going on? that that makes you successful at twitter so i would love to know the answer to this as well um i have some ideas i so i have you know so one thing that's weird about when your twitter followership grows is that you start to worry about those things yeah like i i don't know it's 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 not a good feeling because it all of a sudden feels like it feels like i have like a twitter brand or something right yeah. And like, I don't want a Twitter brand, right? <laughs> like, if I could help it, I just want like my purely natural me to be the brand, yeah. right? But you can't not think about it. Like, sometimes I'll be like, I mean, it's kind of why I broke off those, I broke off a separate like Twitter account for like poker and bridge tweets. Yeah. And it wasn't because like, I I still put some of those in the regular Twitter feed, but like I, I got, you know, I would start like consciously thinking like, do these people who are here because they want to know about like, the House of Representatives floor procedure, do they like really care what I'm doing in level three of like a World Series of Poker tournament? <laughs> like, but, and, and, and in the larger sense, does anyone really care about that? Like, and, and maybe I'll just move that to a feed that has like very few followers, right? Um, but I, so I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I cycle through mediums of how I want to do what I do talking about politics and I'm never satisfied where I am. Like Twitter is both, very satisfying and extremely unsatisfying. It's very satisfying because you can reach a ton of people really quickly. Like, you know, I'll just see like a tweet storm I do and you check the impressions and it's like hundreds of thousands of impressions and you're just like, oh my God, I cannot believe that. But then it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, it's nothing. It's not anything tangible you have. Um, whereas like, if you write an op-ed in a newspaper or something, like that's something tangible, you know, and you can, if you really like it, you can like, frame it and put it on your wall, right? Like I have a New York Times up that I wrote framed on my wall because I was really proud of it. But it's also like, well, there's 800 words, right? That like, it's like, is that really anything? And then you can write a book, right? And writing a book is like really tangible and really solid. But like, does anyone read books, you know? And it's like, I can write endless things on a blog, but does anyone read that? I don't know. I can do a podcast and that, that has a different sort of feel of like, did I do something real versus who's listening to it? And I struggle with this constantly and I constantly just cycle through what I feel like doing. Um, I think Twitter is a really good medium for me because I've come to believe that my core sort of competency is doing sort of explainers um, of, of, of what's going on, like translating sort of like archaic procedures in the House of Representatives about a topic the public's interested in to something the public sort of can understand, or at least the people who listen to my feed can understand, right? And I, I think that's... That's that's a skill set I have, and I think it well suits Twitter, um, uh, because I think in longer form people don't want to get into the details, and you can sort of give them this digestible package of like, okay, so someone wants to, you know, you want to do some, 
you know, Congressman Green from Texas is going to bring an impeachment resolution to the floor. Like, what does that even mean? Right. And I can very quickly sort of explain that to people. And uh, so I, you know, the other medium I'm very good at doing that in is sort of just a, a live audience talk with like 30 people, right? Like a classroom talk or a talk on the Hill with a small group audience. And, and that's a, a medium I feel really comfortable doing that sort of explainer type stuff in. And I think that's probably where my skill set is because I have sort of a technical knowledge about Congress and to a less degree about the executive branch that fits in the gap between what's happening and how people want to understand it who sort of follow me. And so I don't know. As to how you like maintain a Twitter feed to grow followers, I have no clue. Um, I, I, oh, I, I didn't ask that, and I don't really care about it. Right. <laughs> but 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 uh, but but I, I am curious. So you know. Yeah. No. I mean. I. So I. I. I don't know. So sometimes, like, I, and again, as you like grow followers, I don't know if either of you have experience. Like, when I had hundred followers, I didn't care what I wrote on Twitter. <laughs> right? Like, it never bothered me. I just it didn't ever bother me. And then when I had a thousand followers, I was like, oh, this is nice. And then like, and then when I had ten thousand followers, like, that's when I felt like, first of all, just like the, just the inane like snarky and trolly responses start going through the roof to what you write um because i was always like oh i don't need to mute anybody and now i just mute people like wildfire um but uh you know i think um you know the the one thing i am very careful to do on twitter is not get into arguments with people acting in bad faith like i don't argue with anyone on twitter if uh if if they're just sort of like yelling i just don't do it and so i think that's a good way to stay sane there um but uh yeah no i don't know i don't i don't like consciously think about this stuff like sometimes i'll like put a picture of my kids up in my feed and i'll think in my head like eh, this isn't really belong on some other like medium like facebook or something but then like a lot of people will like like it like i like last night i snapped a beer cap into a garbage can from far away <laughs> like a bunch of teenagers, great were, great <laughs> teenagers were like loving it i like loving it like all of a sudden i was the man and then like literally three seconds later as they're still like in awe i like tripped on the grass and hurt my back and it's like this is a perfect tweet like in a generic sense does it fit like my feed i don't know but i put it up there and i put it up there i'm like man this is just stupid right and then like 200 people like it so it's like i don't you know i don't even know to, to think about like like is that like you know humanizing like my like explainers of like the senate procedure maybe but i don't really like i don't i don't i mean the other thing is like i don't even so this is a bigger sort of meta question about like what am i doing on twitter and like some of it is like is am i doing this for just like like vanity reasons or is this like professional development or am I, am I altruistically helping the world and it's like some mix of all three and I don't really know like which ones I even care about it's very it's, so I think it's very convoluted I guess is the answer um, but yeah no, I definitely have honed in on the idea that like doing like the high level explainers to like an intelligent audience is where my wheelhouse is yeah, it's nice it, it feels it's to nice. me like what you're explaining is poorly understood um i guess partly because it's i mean in, in some cases it's just it's arcane you know if, it, if it's just a, a sort of technical question of procedure yeah. or something but right. I, mean, I mean maybe it's what you said before that just like the truth isn't as sexy or the truth isn't what people want to hear um yeah well people grab on to like you know i think in general in politics people grab on to sort of the fairy tale version of democracy um, where, you know, which has never existed, where you sort of have reason debate and voters who are knowledgeable about party platforms and choose, 
you know, parties to represent their ideological interests. And then you have sort of this informed deliberation in a legislature that produces sort of a reasoned uh, outcome. And then you get policies out of that. And then it, you know, goes back to the voters for another round of that. And that's just like, it's, there's like no democracy that's ever functioned that way. And so, you know, I get a lot of anger on Twitter, you know, when I talk about sort of the self-interest of U.S. senators, right? Why they would or wouldn't do something. Um, because you get this sort of absolute, you know, belief in people that, you know, politicians should just, quote, unquote, do the right thing. The, the um, first time you were on the show, and, I, and, I, I asked you about that. I, yeah, I used that and it's just, it's, yeah, and, and doing the right thing is just, it's not really a part of, like, democratic politics because no one can define the right thing. Um, and usually when people say that, they mean, do the thing I want you to do this time only, <laughs> right? And then... Next time, you know, next time, listen to your constituents instead of taking this sort of moral position on things um, that defies your constituencies, you know. And so, I, I, you know, I think and I, you know, I, I grew up mostly in the politics of a city machine where sort of the right thing existed at some level, but sort of just base power politics um, was also a massively important consideration, even beyond sort of representing constituencies, just like the basic like fuck off, beat us in an election if you got a better idea. Um, we don't want to hear it. And so I, I think from a very early age, I was, it's a different kind of cynic. It's not a cynic. I'm not cynical about what democracy can accomplish, which is what I think most people are cynical about that. Like you'll, you'll never do these great things. Um, but I do have that sort of basic cynicism where I don't believe in the fairy tale. I don't, you know, I don't, you know, when I, when I think of like what it means to have good deliberation about something, I don't think about rhetoric at all. Most people think, you know, deliberation in the United States Senate is everyone saying things and changing their mind because they've adopted positions. To me, deliberation is just the right to offer an amendment and get a vote on it, right? That's deliberation. I got an idea that I think is better. Let's see if the majority thinks it's better, too. Um, and, and that is how, to, how do you iteratively, you know, deliberate over legislation, not by having some sort of, you know, reasoned, uh, elevated debate over the merits of one policy versus another. Would it be fair so, to say that, like, so the, the the reason, or like the thing that you do think is good about American style democracy is that it creates a system of incentives such that uh, when the players kind of like follow their incentives, they arrive at equilibria that are kind of stable in a, in a variety of ways, like. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And like just discouraging civil war and whatever else. Yeah, I mean, I, so I think you have to differentiate between democracy as an idea and then sort of American Madisonian democracy because I think those are two sort of different things because most of the world moved on. Like, you know, the parliamentary systems don't reflect sort of our style of democracy. But I think in general, like democracy is the, you know, there's that sort of apocryphal Churchill quote or whoever you want to say it to. It's like democracy is the, Worst force of worst form of government, except all the rest, right? Like it's the least worst option, um, and I think that's true because it's the it's the one system that incentivizes the elite political actors to take into consideration the opinions of the commoners, right? And so I think that at a very sort of first cut level, if you can get a stable democracy in place, you're less likely to have oppressive tax regimes and poor commoner boys sent off to wars that are just unnecessary, right? And so I think it's the, 
it, it's a system among all the possible systems, not among all the fantasy systems people have in their heads, but among all the possible systems that that does the most for the worst off in society. That doesn't mean the worst off in society and democracies are doing great, but they're almost certainly doing better than they would in any other sort of real world alternative. Um, American democracy is a peculiar brand of this, of course, because we have this sort of adversarial separation of power system um, where most of the, you know, uh, you know, a fair, m- most democracies in the world are on the parliamentary systems, which create these sort of unified governments um, that are only held in place by elections and sort of public opinion, whereas our system's a little bit older. You know, people weren't sure that that could work. They were terrified of sort of just having the commoners elect people um, in the 1700s. And so we have this sort of uh, adversarial system that grinds up power and disperses it to, you know, to tons of different places. And that's um, hinged on a, on a different proposition. That's hinged on sort of a very, like, core core enlightenment liberalism proposition and that is that the common good can be derived um, be it in the market or in the political world by sort of everyone fighting against each other and allowing more voices into play Um, it's no different than sort of Mill's theory of free speech or Smith's theory of economics that if you just allow everything to compete you can get the common good Uh, there's a there's a you know a fair number of movements uh, in history both on the left and right that reject that thinking that don't believe you can derive the common good uh, from sort of reason, political debate, in an open democracy, and that you need sort of a more author- authoritarian system, either of the right or of the left, uh, in order to produce the best outcomes. Um, I disagree with those, uh, but there's plenty of people who believe that, and there's lots of critics of liberal democracy, uh, both on the socialist left and on the on, on the fascist right, uh, about sort of the role of our style system uh, working to produce best public good outcomes. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, I think that that's right. The, the the basic beauty of the American system is one that it's super stable, uh, and and second is that it it meets out public policies that are uh, not particularly perfectly aligned with the the common good of all society, but not super far away from it, um, or at least closer than other systems will get you there. Uh, and it does it under a system that uh, closely approximates sort of the rule of law and the treatment of every individual as equal, at least again, in comparison to other systems. Um, but again, like the stability is the thing and, uh, you get outside, you know, Western Europe and a couple other places in North America and the, you know, the remnants of the British empire. And it's hard to build these democracies because the stability and the sort of basic non-corruption people in the United States are just all over this idea that, oh, the system's corrupt and, and money just, you know, does everything. It's like, man, if you, look at some of these governmental systems where actual corruptions in place and the you know and the justice system is corrupt and the court system is corrupt and the bureaucracy is just bribe your way to everything uh and you're just longing for a system as quote unquote corrupt as the united states system i i tying together a couple things i have a i have a different kind of question um if you watch the tv show billions is its depiction of albany politics uh satisfying to you <laughs> Well, I should say this. I don't watch Billions, and the fact that you just said Albany politics are involved in Billions is I'm probably going to start it tonight. <laughs> it's I, I I love the crap out of that show. <laughs> yeah, no, I so I I um I you know, I see um I see tweets about Billions and things by the creators, and uh, I always um am curious about it, and it's probably just this inertia of my wife and I having like this laundry list of prestige television we want to watch and just not getting to it but man if it involves albany politics i definitely want to get on that because yeah, albany politics one. is yeah not in season one but i've thought of you very very frequently and when you say lot. albany albany politics do you mean new york state politics or do you mean local politics in albany 
Um, I mean, New York state politics, but also, uh, but also like, so like where, where is the casino going to get built? So the interaction between God. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So uh, Albany politics is a distinct brand of mayhem. Um, And, uh, you know, when I was, when I was, when I was a boy, we had, um, Mayor Corning was still there and he had been mayor for 40 something years when I was a boy. And, uh, he was really just a figurehead. Imagine being mayor for 40 years and being a figurehead because it really was run by a tight political machine um, at the center of it, which was a man named uh, Dan O'Connell who had uh, cut a deal with Corning's father. Uh, Corning's father was sort of part of the blue blood elite in the early 20th century uh, in Albany. And O'Connell's father owned the bar down in sort of the Irish immigrant south end of Albany. And uh, Corning, his father, was the first one to see that if you don't make a deal with the Irish immigrants down in the South End, you're not going to have political power for long. And so they cut the deal. And then that those two families, their machine ruled the city for, you know, a solid 65 years. Uh, and the remnants of that machine still is sort of the basis of politics there. So I've I've seen it all in Albany. Um, it's, I, you know, I think you might like the show. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Like just, I mean, the core the core idea of a political machine is so wonderful and terrible at the same time because they do do really good things for people but they also you know it's just it's just it's not even corrupt in a way you think about corruption where corruption ruins like a working system it's like the entire system is just thoroughly built on a patronage model that's not like identifiably corrupt because it just so thoroughly is um and this is you know you know everything from you know even when i was a teenager in albany or more more when i was a kid if your bar served the beer from the beer company that was owned by the O'Connells, then your bar could stay open all night. And if it didn't, it had to close at midnight. And just like the softest stuff like that, where you could just see like the vertical and horizontal integration of the machine across all the politics is this. Sometimes people say it's slimy or just totally scummy. And I think that's true, but there's also something actually totally beautiful about it because at the bottom of it was a huge class of citizens who are well served by this machine. Um, and were able to get services delivered when they needed them, um, even if the cost of it was just the wider tax base in the county was just absolutely ransacked. But yeah, I'm going to watch Billion. That's a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, every so often, including 10 seconds ago, I, I pull up uh, Oh Smallbody. Oh, it, it, it always delivers. It always yeah, delivers. first vlog I ever wrote, Oh Smallbody. Um, yeah, and... Uh, yeah, that was back. I was in graduate school and I was, oh my God, I was in graduate school. I was living in Albany. I was probably doing a mix of one third, one third, one third of the following three things. This was like 2000. I just got married 2004. So I had no job. I just worked on my dissertation. I had like a stipend from a couple foundations throughout my dissertation. I'd say a third of my day was my dissertation. A third of it was writing about Albany politics. And a third of it was grinding poker stars. And it was a, uh, <laughs> it was quite, a quite a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even seeing like the blogger logo. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd, uh, n- never mind that I occasionally see it at work. Uh, it brings it brings back memories. It brings back yeah. memories. Yeah, it's a place in time. Place in time. Yeah. If, if, if we're um, ready to wrap up, I have a concluding question. Yeah, go for it. I mean, I I can keep going talking too, but, but hit your concluding question. Maybe we'll develop yeah, more. I, I, this could easily spiral out. Um, yeah. Have you played poker on the new table yet? Oh yes, I have. So yeah, <laughs> this was uh, this was like a, a 
so I built a poker table, which um, which seems like a pretty like reasonable thing to do. But I built like a really nice poker table. I have a a neighbor who's a friend of mine who uh, plays poker with us, who is a uh, expert woodworker who has built uh, poker tables in the past, and uh, he. Uh, you know, I have this I have this old rickety Kestel table. I don't know if you guys even know what that is. It's like, you know, it's just an old stud octagon uh, that I picked up used when when I moved to DC. I'd had one in New Haven and one before that, but you just kinda of throw them away. And uh, he looked at it, he's like, We gotta build a new table for you. And so uh, I apprenticed the construction of this poker table. Um, I paid for all the materials, but then beyond that, I, just Dan and I, Dan's my friend. Uh, we just worked on it. It took us about thirty hours. We started in May. Um, and we just finished a couple weeks ago and now, uh, yeah, now I got an awesome poker table. First game on it. I dragged it over to the tournament series, uh, that I told you I finished fourth in. And so it was amazing. It was the first time I played poker on it and I just got hit by the deck. Like you wouldn't believe <laughs> to the point where like, it's like people making jokes. Like, do you install whole card cameras on this thing? <laughs> and it was just, you know, it wasn't any sort of like particular skill on my part. It was mostly just, you know, <laughs> flopping sets and turn straights. Um, but yeah, so I played uh, uh, two, uh, just uh, one or two poker games on it, and then a bunch of uh, just uh, Oh Hell games, which is a bridge derivative. Um, but it's been fantastic. Like it's the perfect size, and uh, it's got all the creature comforts. And just upgrading to like our actual foam rail over sort of those wooden rails on an old stud table, it's just great. So it's been awesome. I highly recommend uh, people build really nice poker tables. I, I can only imagine and, how satisfying uh, it must be to, to play on a table that you built. Oh, my God, yeah. Well, especially, like, especially like you know, so the thing I learned most building this table is that, you know, doing sort of the construction of this requires a bunch of things. It requires the tools, right? And my friend Dan has all the, all the great tools for doing this kind of stuff. And it requires a little bit of knowledge, but you can kind of pick that knowledge up. And it requires some experience. Like if something goes wrong, like how to fix it, it's kind of weird. But the main thing it requires, and the thing that I don't have, but my friend Dan does, is just an an intense uh, focus on absolute perfection in the details. And so you know, it's the kind of thing where like we're just sanding the we're just sanding the racetrack on this thing, and we're using like 400 grit sandpaper. Like we're down to like nothing. And like we're finishing. I'm rubbing, and this is like the smoothest. It's like I can't even believe it's plywood. It just feels like apple. It feels perfect, and and he's like, he's, and he's going around it. And he's like, nah, we better hit this at least once more tomorrow. And it's that sort of, and it's that sort of attention to absolute detail and and demanding of perfection of these things that really makes the difference, um, and how it comes out because it really, I mean, I just it's it's astoundingly, you can't believe you built it at the end, and then you know. The other thing is that like there's no like visible evidence that the thing is held together. Like everything is hidden, every screw. Every nail, all like the there's like a thousand staples in this thing that stapled the you know the upholstery on the rail down. You can't see any of them, of course. It's all hidden, and so it just looks like you know some absurd factory built table that cost four grand or something. But no, we just built it in the driveway. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is great to play on it, and uh, I mean especially after I mean I've played on so many garbage poker tables, and the thing is like you know it's perfectly sturdy and. Yeah, and we put USB ports in it, which is an absolute showstopper. When people see that, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, you know what? And they're like, oh, wow, I'll, I'll remember to bring my cable next time. It's like, well, I'll rent you one. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, my friend Dan, who builds these, he's an engineer uh, you know, by design, you know, by background, and so he has to like put a new feature in anything he does like this. It's always got to be an upgrade, right? It's a very kind of classic, <laughs> stereotypical <laughs> engineer. Like in his upgrade this time, was like, oh, we got to put USB ports in this thing. And so we did. Yeah, but it's really, uh, it's great. Sometime you guys will come to DC and, and uh, we'll play on it. I'm, I'm nice. very excited about that idea. <laughs> it's uh, this reminds me, we have a listener who, last I heard from him, was working on a material history of poker. Um, and I really hope he finishes that project because it's a, it's a good subject. It's uh, um, So, hey, you know, Mr. Mr. P, if you're out there, you should get going on that material history of poker. <laughs> We have a lot to talk to Mr. P about if we can ever get him on the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah also, call on the show already. Jeez. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Um, well, thank you as always, Matt. Sorry, sorry we kept you waiting a little bit. Um, we, we didn't keep him waiting. I'm sorry, Matt. Yeah, you have nothing to apologize for. Uh, we're, 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 it's, it's a collective. We're in this together. We're in this together. Uh, yeah, except <laughs> I, yeah, it's like it's like uh, Nolan Ryan's teammates used to joke that uh, you know between them they had seven no hitters. It's 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 like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel about this show sometimes. So, like yeah, we got we got a lot of top hundred finishes. We got uh, we got my one, we got my one, and we got Andrew. You know, but but really, it's it's like a you know, it's who who's. Who's to tell where my accomplishments end and Andrews begin? You know, we're so closely entwined in this project. <laughs> do you have a top hundred finish, Nate? I do. I, I got ninety eighth one year. Oh, I had it in my head. You got a hundred and second, and I was so ready to call you on that if that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> one second, let me. Yeah, which you should. Which you should. Let's see. Landon um, Davis. One second. Uh, yeah, ninety eighth. Oh, 98th. too yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, I have a funny Hendon mob by this point. It's uh, like, <laughs> but um, yeah, seventh of July, twenty eleven. That's uh, uh, back in um, I will, in, in two thousand eleven. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, Nate is always bashful about this, but I highly recommend anyone to go read Nate's trip report from that two thousand eleven main event because it's. It's my favorite trip report I've ever read about a poker tournament, and it just blow you away. Uh, colorful in his description of Vegas and what it feels like to be in a tournament like that. Um, it's also heavy on the actual hand histories, which is fun, but it's much more about sort of the color of the psychological and physical toll a poker tournament can take on you. Well, thank you. That's, yeah. that that one. I am I am proud of that one. I am proud of that one. I also like wonder if that will be the best received piece of writing or or human accomplishment of any form like i will ever do <laughs> it's great it's like oh, i have this uh 308 episode podcast that's super popular across the internet but you should check out this trip report i did a decade ago when i was in my 20s but seriously it's like like honestly i just want the project of like parenting my son to turn out better than, like that's like it's it's you know it, it, it's not clear that in, that I've got more than one thing in my life. The, uh, it's not clear I could ask for you know more than. Yeah, it's uh, right. It's like it's like it's actually worse that your eulogy will start off with this trip. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's good uh, father, great trip report in 2011. <laughs> Man, it's a uh, kid. Kid turned out great. Good kid. Like and you know. 
It's like, you know, where he's describing the cash games. Yeah. It's like that, no. that, that was really true to life for me, man. That really captured it for me. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, he ported that between three different blogs because, like, people kept asking him about it. You know? and then he hosted Oh, that thing, yeah. that thing was serialized on 2 plus 2 back when serializing something on 2 plus 2 was amazing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People would yell at me if I was, like, a day late with an installment. Yeah, no. Now there's a... I think there's a version up at namemavis.com, but um, yeah, that's yeah. Patrick McKenzie, one of our former guests, like he he has like he, he wrote up this little article about salary negotiation for engineers, and like he estimates that by economic impact, it's an order of magnitude more important than anything else he's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, like boy, you know that's good, but I really don't want that to be like you know the prime piece of my economic legacy, and I. I I feel that, but you know, for yeah, uh, <laughs> some other thing. But thank you for the compliment. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very nice of you. And uh, and I'm apologizing because you know I feel I feel I feel like Andrew and I act collectively in in in, in this show. So <laughs> and and I'm I'm late more often than he is anyway. So. Um, yeah, but it's it's a pleasure as always. Thank you for yeah. uh, you know doing yeah. It's a uh, the, the you know stacking up sandbags against the rising tides of ignorance. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I appreciate. That. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we definitely did a lot of uh, meta talk. But if you guys want to do, I don't know if you know impeachment moves forward or whatever. If you want to do a hardcore like FAQ Q and A show, I'm happy to do that too because. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's nothing I need to prepare for. It's not difficult, and I enjoy it. So I'm always happy to come talk about current politics. Yeah, that'd be great. That I mean, I'm going to say yes, and Andrew yeah. Fromage has to say no, yes. No, I, I think that's, that's the great <laughs> idea. Um, and we should probably put out like on yeah, if, if if we do something like that, you know, let people know in advance on Twitter and give people a chance to write in questions and that kind of thing. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I, you know, and that this could be, you know, like everything with the what's going on in Washington right now, there's a lot of contingency. And so everything could fizzle in two weeks, you know, when everybody's back in DC, uh, or this could be moving really fast or it could move really slowly. So this, this is down the road somewhere, maybe. Well, I appreciate the offer anyway, Matt, and appreciate you taking the time tonight. I'm sorry, Nate and I were late. And, uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> have a good evening. All right. Good night. Take care. Tapping on my window pane Feeling faint, feeling ashamed Spread too thin and hoping for a sin Devotion of a car, the light of the fair passage of a bill.